0: your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Mark chapter 10 verse 13 if you're using one of the Bibles you may have picked up when you came in this morning it's on page 409 we're continuing our series through the gospel of Mark Um, if you're a guest to our church this is predominantly how we study the Bible here at the orchard we start uh, in a book of the Bible chapter 1 verse 1 and we work our way verse by verse all the way through and we are up to Mark chapter 10 verse 13 uh, today Um, As we've seen so far in the first 10 chapters of Mark, and as you read the Gospels and you follow the life of Christ and especially watch his teaching, Jesus uses a lot of different methods to teach. And, uh, and to help people understand spiritual truths, he, we've seen him use symbols, we've seen him use miracles, we've seen him use parables. Today, he's going to use paradoxes. How many of you guys have ever heard of a paradox? Raise your hand, okay? Someone wants to find a paradox in this way, and I got it in your notes. It's a statement that seems to contradict, contradict itself, yet expresses a valid truth. A statement that seems to contradict itself... Yet expresses a valid truth. And we're going to see Jesus use some of these paradoxes to teach us some principles today. But I came up with some uh, pictures of some paradoxes. And these are kind of some funny paradoxes. So let me, let me show you these, these. All right, I don't know if you guys can read that. A bottomless pit, 65 feet deep. Kind of hard to understand that there. That's a paradox. Okay, Here's another one. No eating or drinking permitted in the food court. You must buy your food. Take it somewhere else, evidently. Here's another paradox. These are kind of funny. This one speaks for itself. <laughs> Just let you figure that out for yourself right there. Here's, here's another one. Okay, now you got to think about this one. It says simply what? Oh. Simply Amish. <laughs> what is it on? <laughs> I haven't seen any Amish guys driving 18-wheelers recently. I don't know if there's a bunch of horses in front of that or what, but it's a little bit of a paradox there, okay? I, I really like these next two, okay? Let's look at this next one. Illiterate, write for help. (laughs) I'm just saying that might not be exactly the message they were wanting to send. I'm not sure how. And this next one is my favorite. You'll love this one. Here's our last one. Phone out of service, give us a call. (laughs) Guess you've got to borrow your friends. Well, today we're going to look at some paradoxes. Jesus gives us four important lessons expressed in four succinct Paradoxal statements. Before we jump into the first one, I want to kind of catch you guys up uh, as we're following Jesus on this journey, where we're at um, geographically, where we're at on the map. So if we could put the map up, we so far in the first nine and a half going into 10 chapters of Mark, Jesus has been up here in this Galilean area. Many people refer to this as his Galilean ministry. And remember, he's been up here in Capernaum and he'll go out into the region and he'll teach and do miracles and he'll come back to Capernaum and he'll go out again. And that's mainly where he's been for the first nine chapters. Now Jesus has taken his disciples down the south side, or or the west side and the southerly route of the uh, Sea of Galilee down past the Jordan River, and now he is over here in Judea, and they're heading up here to the mountains, to Jerusalem. So Jesus is now moving toward Jerusalem. He's moving closer towards his death, his burial, his resurrection. So that's kind of where we're at. Jesus has left the Sea of Galilee. He's now getting very close to Jerusalem. I just wanted to kind of give you that so you know the context of where we're at and where we're reading uh, on the map so here's the first paradox we see today the adults will be as children jesus is going to teach us that the adults will be as children mark chapter 10 picking up verse 13 then they brought little children to jesus that he might touch them but the disciples rebuked those who brought them But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, to his disciples, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. Why? For such is the kingdom of God. And as we've learned throughout the book of Mark, he's talking about not a literal kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. How we get saved, how we come into the family of God. He says, you got to come like a little child. Assuredly, verse 15, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little what church? as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up, the children in his arms. He laid his hands on them and he blessed them, blessed the children. You know, at this time, parents would have wanted to bring their children to a rabbi like Jesus, a teacher, a spiritual leader, and hope that he would touch them and bless them. And of course, at this time, Jesus was the most famous of all the rabbis and word was spreading about him. And so that's probably what's going on. But when he brings these children to Jesus, what do the disciples say? What? How do they react? Do they say, hey, come on, bring the kids on up here? No, they're like, no, he doesn't. Doesn't have time send them away don't bother jesus right now and jesus reaction to that what his disciples did in verse 14 it says he was greatly displeased in the original language that could be translated he was pretty ticked off jesus was mad i mean this is very strong greek words here when it says jesus was greatly displeased he was very upset at his disciples for not allowing the children to come to him and and be blessed and to sit with them and and jesus here is letting the disciples know that children are a better example of people in his kingdom than even adults. You know, we tend to tell children to behave like adults, but Jesus tells the adults to model themselves after the children in this story. Now, how can adults do that? What does Jesus mean by this? Well, here's the paradox. Adults, Jesus is saying, should be like children. He's not talking physically speaking, but what, church? spiritually speaking. Have you ever heard a phrase uh, like this, childlike faith? We need to have childlike faith to come to Jesus, to accept Him, to, to come into His family, to be a part of His kingdom. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Having, as adults, childlike faith, wanting to be in the arms of Jesus, wanting to be with Jesus, believing Him, trusting Him, having faith in Him. You think about a child's complete dependence and trust. Upon their parents, especially when they're very young, when they're, when they're very little. I mean, they don't have a worry or care in the world. I mean, they don't have to worry about where their next meal is going to come from. They don't have to worry about the clothes they're going to wear. They don't have to worry about the budget or how much money is in the bank or whether they have a roof over their head or what career they're going to have. You know, they just trust mom and dad that they're going to take care of those things. They have complete faith, trust, and dependence upon their parents when, when they're a little child. Now, notice in this passage, he doesn't say, become like a teenager, Because I have teenagers. And let me just tell you, they are very concerned about food, about clothing, about money. When's our next meal, Dad? When are we going to eat? Hey, I need some money, Dad. Hey, I need... So it's children here. He's saying have faith like little children that show complete trust, faith, dependence upon our heavenly Father and trusting in Him. You see, people get into God's kingdom... His spiritual kingdom, salvation, eternal life. We get into that like little children. How did did we come to Christ? We came helpless. We came came to God unable to save ourselves. Totally dependent upon God's mercy and grace to save us. If that's how you got in the kingdom, say yes. And that's how everyone has to come. With childlike faith and trust and dependence upon God. And here's something, though, for you that are believers, and I know many of you have accepted Christ. You came with that childlike faith, whether you realize it or not, realizing you could do nothing of yourself, fully putting your faith and dependence and trust on God. But you know what? We enjoy God's family and His kingdom the same way. That faith should not stop once we accept Christ. Amen? The Bible says the just shall live by faith. And that means that we believe... That our heavenly father loves us more than we can ever fathom and imagine. He loves us more than any parent loves their child. And as a parent, you know how much you love your children. God loves us so much more. Because it's perfect. It's unconditional. And that we, once we come into the kingdom, we're saved by grace through faith. That we continue to know God loves us. He cares for us. And he will meet our daily needs. Whatever we face in our life. And believing we can run like a child into his arms. And he'll take care of us. If you believe that, say yes. We come into the kingdom with childlike faith. We continue to enjoy the kingdom with childlike faith. You know, you look at a little kid, a little child. They get hurt. What do they want? They want mom. They want dad. They want to find them. They want to run to them, jump into their their arms. When our children were very young, you know, when they were in those toddler years, and you know, four, five, six, that's when we were living in Indiana, and that's one of the things I kind of miss about the Midwest, we had great thunderstorms in the Midwest, you don't get those quite as much in Colorado, but man, great thunderstorms, and I remember, you know, as soon as that first crack of thunder would happen, here would come two children flying into our bedroom, you know, jumping into our bed, wanting to be with mom, wanting to be with dad, I remember as I used to come home in those early days, you know, I'd barely walk in the door, and bam, bam, one kid on each leg dad dad you know they wanted to be with dad they wanted to run to dad you know my kids are teenagers now they they don't do that as much and they've kind of grown out of that and that's understandable but I you know what I love as a lot of you have young children in our church and many times I'll be standing out in the courtyard after service greeting people and telling them goodbye. And there'll be sometimes a line of people wanting to talk. And, 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 it, and some, some, there's certain little children in our, our church, you know, four or five years old. And it doesn't matter who's in line. They butt right to the front of line. Bam, Pastor Doug! And they give me a big hug. People behind them are like, hey, you just cut in line. And I'm like, you can wait. Oh, yes. I love that. I love that because my kids don't do that as much anymore. I love that there's one little kid in our church. His name is Jonas Sandal. It's Joe and Chris Sandal's a little boy. I think he's about four years old. And he's got this cutest little gruff voice. And he always runs up to me. He's always got a question for Pastor Doug. He's always got a question. And he goes, Pastor Doug, I got a question for you. And he talks just like that if you know him. And he'll run, he'll come and he'll talk to me. He'll got a question. I'm just going to tell you all, his questions are harder than most of your questions. It was just a couple of weeks ago, he ran up to me and said, Pastor Doug, I got a question. How is Jesus, God, and the Holy Spirit the same person? I'm like, okay, we need to talk later. We got a theologian here in preparation. But I love that. Don't you love how kids, you know, just trust, you know, their parents and people and and, and that? And, you know, and teenagers, they kind of outgrow that. But you know what? We can do that in our our spiritual lives. We can get to the place, if we're not careful, where we think we're too big for God. Too big to run into his arms and show complete faith and trust and dependence upon him. And this is what Jesus is reminding us. Don't ever lose that childlike faith. This is how we as adults should approach our relationship with our Heavenly Father, with childlike faith. Now, you have this in your notes. God wants us to be childlike, but not childish, and there's a difference, amen? He wants us to be childlike, but not childish, and no matter how mature you get in your faith, you can still have childlike faith, and let me just ask you today, do you need to get back to a childlike faith? Have you grown up to the place in your spiritual life where you say, you know, I kind of feel like I can do this on my own. I'll call on you, God, if I need you. Or do, Do you constantly, your first response when you're going through a decision, a challenge, a trial, a difficulty, our first response should be childlike faith to run into Jesus' arms like these children and to find comfort in Him, total dependence upon Him. I love what it says in verse 16. Notice this. And Jesus took these children up in His what? In His arms... And he put his hands on them and he blessed them. You see, this is how God will respond to us when we run to him. He takes us in his arms. He loves on us and he blesses us. Childlike faith puts you in the arms of Jesus. And I can't think of a better place to be, church. Amen? That's the first paradox. The first one is that adults will be as children. Here's the second paradox we see in this passage. The first will be last. The first will be last. Let's pick it up in verse 17. Now, as Jesus was going out on the road, one came running to him, knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I've kept... From my youth. Then Jesus looked at him. I love these next two words. He loved him. And he said to him, one thing you lack, young man, go your way. Sell whatever you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come and take up your cross and follow me. This man, young man, was certainly faced with a big decision. And let's, let's see what he did. Verse 22. But this young man was sad at Jesus word and he went away how sorrowful and he had why because he had great possessions he went away the same way he came to Jesus really empty spiritually you see we've just learned about childlike faith and this as you read the other gospels tells us some other details about this young man that he was young he was rich he was a ruler this is the story of the rich young ruler that came to Jesus and we just learned about childlike faith this rich young ruler was the poster child for the opposite of childlike faith. What was the first thing he asked you? He said, I want eternal life. And he said, What do I need to what church? What do I need to do? He thought, like most people, i got to do something to get saved. i got to do something to get into heaven. i got to do something to have eternal life. 98% of all religions tell you if you want to go to heaven, if you want to have eternal life, then you got to do certain things. Yet the Bible says just the opposite. It's not about what we do. It's about what Jesus did, and we simply accept that as a gift by faith. And this young man is a picture of the opposite of that. Now, obviously, this young man had a spiritual interest. He wanted eternal life. Verse 17, when he comes up to Jesus, something was missing in his life. Even though he was young, he was powerful, he was a ruler, he had money, he was not satisfied. Something was missing. And so he had heard about this Jesus of Nazareth. And he probably thought, maybe this guy can can give me what's missing in my life. And notice how he addresses Jesus here. He says in verse 17, he calls him good teacher. Now, That doesn't sound like much to us, but in that Jewish culture, the Talmud itself said, don't call anyone good, because to call someone good means you were saying they were sinless. Now, we all know and understand that Jesus was good. He was sinless. But this young man probably did not understand this. And that's why Jesus questioned him about it. And when he said good teacher, he, he was, it, this was really a no-no. And probably the disciples and everybody kind of, oh, whoa, do you really know who you're talking about here? I mean, do you, do you understand what you're saying? And Jesus is not correcting him, saying that he's not God or he's not sinless, but rather he's asking this young man, do you really know what you're saying? Do you really know who you're talking to? Or are you just trying to flatter me because you want something from me, which was probably the case? And in verse 19, because this young man thought, he was very confused theologically and spiritually, thought that he had to do something to, to get eternal life. In verse 19, what does Jesus do? He says, okay, if you think there's something you can do, how about these commandments? And he quotes six of the 10 commandments. And he specifically mentions the six that are, are, are commandments toward man. The first four are toward God, the other six are toward man. He's like, okay, if you think you're good enough to get in to heaven and have eternal life on your own how you done how have you done with these six commandments and what does the young man say he's like oh yeah i've kept all those yeah right you know he's lying there's no way anybody has kept all of those at all times i mean this guy is kind of pious he thinks it's about worth. it's kind of like me asking you guys this morning how many of you guys did not sin one time last week raise your hand now if anybody around you raises your hand they just sin because they just lied to all of us right because we all sin. We, we make mistakes. And so this, he's trying to point this out to this young man. If you think you can be good enough. So he quotes, you know, uh, the law, six of the ten commandments. And he's saying, how have you done with these? And, and let me just mention this, church, so we don't forget. Jesus isn't saying, if you keep the commandments, that's how you get eternal life. He's actually saying, you can't keep the commandments. That's why you need a savior. The law was never meant to save anyone. The law was meant to be A mirror. A mirror that we look in and we realize we are sinners, we can't keep the law, and we need a Savior, amen? And so the law is a mirror, but it's the blood of Christ that's the cleanser. And so verse 20, this young man says, yeah, I've kept all these, I've done okay, and he's probably, probably lying here because and, and, and he hadn't been able to keep all of them. And so then, verse 21, this young man's obviously kind of messed up. Jesus doesn't correct him. He doesn't, uh, you know, start out by, you know, just telling him how horrible he is, but rather he looks at him and he what? He loves him. He accepts him for who he is, even though he's kind of messed up in his thinking. You know, that's how Jesus views every one of us and every one of you. He doesn't look at us and view us and want to start picking out all the bad things. He has love and compassion for us first. And he wants to help turn us to him and save us. You know, so many times when I'm talking to people and I'm sharing, you know, the gospel with them, many times people say, oh, I can't come to church yet. i got to get these things cleaned up in my life. I can't accept Jesus yet. I've got to get these things cleaned up in my life. Listen, we don't get all cleaned up and then come to Jesus. We come to Jesus and then he cleans us up. Amen? And and this is a great example how Jesus responds to this young man, how we as individuals should respond to people that don't know the Lord, and how we as a church should respond to people. We should never, ever judge anyone that walks through these doors, no matter what condition they're in, because this is where they can find Christ, amen? And we need to look on them, and we need to love them, and accept them right where they are, and introduce them to Jesus. The one that could change their life. And that's one of the things I love about the Orchard Church. This is not a judgmental church. This is a church that will meet people right where they are. They can walk in those doors in any condition. And we will love them. And we will have compassion on them. And we will introduce them to Jesus. But, this, but Jesus has this guy figured out. And he's gonna, because he loves him, he's going to help him. And notice in verse 21. What he says here, the one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, give it to the poor, and you have treasure in heaven, and come back and take up your cross and follow me. Jesus had knew what was keeping this young man from childlike faith. It was his possessions. It was his money. His money and possessions were his God. And Jesus points it out and says, listen, you're going to have to be willing to give up that to fully have faith and trust in me. Now, don't, make sure you don't get confused here. Jesus was not telling him how to have eternal life. Notice he said if you give all your stuff to the poor, it doesn't say you'll have eternal life. You'll have tre- he says you'll have treasures in heaven. Because you, you can give all the money to the poor in the world, but until you accept Jesus as your Savior, it doesn't save you. Amen? He's just pointing out to him the thing in this young man's life that was holding him back. From full surrender and faith in Jesus, it was his things. He was trusting more in his things and his possessions and his money than being willing to trust fully in faith in Jesus. Jesus was letting him know that his riches, power, and success were keeping him from childlike faith and fully surrendering to Jesus. Let me ask you this morning. What is keeping you from full surrender to Jesus? If you're here today and you've never accepted Christ, your Lord and Savior, what's keeping you from that? is it is it is it power is it your possessions is it a position is it another person be willing to let go so you can put your full faith and trust in Christ you know Jesus points out here and he's going to expound on this in just a moment that rich people are really hard to reach very wealthy people and we found that to be true even right here in the United States You know, it's really interesting, you go to, you know, when we go on our mission trips, when we go to Haiti, when we go to the Philippines, and we go to some of these third world countries, they are so open to the gospel. And one of the reasons is because they're not so tied down to stuff, to money and possessions and things. And for them, it's a blessing they don't have all that because it makes it easier for them to come to Christ. You know, Shelley and I learned this firsthand because for a year, before seven years ago, before we planted the Orchard Church, we thought we were gonna plant a church in Castle Rock. And for a year, we were planning to go to Castle Rock and plant a church. And then as I began to study the area and do demographics and talk to other pastors, I found out a statistic that was very alarming to me that 27 church plants went into Castle Rock and all died within the first year. Now, there have been some churches that have made it there and are doing well there, but you know what? That's a pretty affluent area. And not everybody, but some there probably feel like, you know what, I don't need God. I look look at my house, look at my car, look at all that I have, I don't need. And we have to be very careful. And listen, it's not bad to have nice things as long as those things don't have us. And that was the problem with this rich young ruler. They had such a hold on his life, it kept him from childlike faith and full surrender to Jesus. Now, Jesus uses this young man... As a teaching opportunity to his disciples to reveal this paradox. That the first shall be last. Look at verse 23. What happens? Right after this young man refuses childlike faith. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples. Here's the teaching lesson. How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. Notice he said it's hard. It's not impossible. How hard it is. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Do you notice the difference? Jesus changed it the first time. He said how hard it is for those who have riches. The second time he says how hard it is for those who trust in riches. See, it's not wrong to have them. But if you're not careful before long, you'll begin to trust in them. And when you trust in riches and possessions... It's hard to have childlike faith and trust in in Christ and trust in God. Verse 25, Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished. His disciples were astonished at what Jesus was saying and saying among themselves, who then can be saved? And the reason they were confused by this, because in that Jewish culture in the first century, people thought that if you had great possessions and money, that was a sign of God's blessing on your life. And Jesus is saying, it may be, it may not be. And so they were kind of trying to understand this themselves. But Jesus looked at them and said, with men, it is impossible for rich people to get saved. But not with God. For with God, how many things are possible? All things. God can change someone's heart. Amen? God can change someone's life. Then Peter began to say, Peter's always got something to say. We've seen that throughout Mark. Then Peter began to say to him, see, we have left all to follow you. You know, Peter's trying to brag. He's like, okay, we're not like the rich young ruler. We've left everything, Jesus, to follow you. So what, we're, what, what's in it for us? What do you got for us, Jesus? Because we've given up everything, unlike that rich young ruler. And look how Jesus responds. So Jesus answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, who shall not receive a hundred times. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, don't turn this into a prosperity gospel passage. Persecution comes with it. And in the age to come, eternal life. And here's the paradoxical statement. But many who are first, like the rich young ruler, will be what, church? Will be last. And the last will be First. You see, to society, the rich young ruler stood first among society. And the poor disciples who had given up most everything stood last in society's eyes. But Jesus saw the paradox in the light of eternity, and he told them, listen, whatever you've given up, the first will be last, but the last will become first, the second paradox. So we've seen the paradox of adults being as children, the paradox of the first will be last. And then we see the third paradox, and it's this. And we've seen this before, and Jesus repeats it again, which lets us know this ought to be really important for us. The servants will be rulers. When you, generally, when you think of a ruler, you think of somebody who gets served. Jesus has the paradox of just the opposite. Servants in his kingdom will be the rulers. Let's pick it up in verse 32. Now, as they were on the road, Jesus with his disciples going to Jerusalem, they're headed to Jerusalem now, And Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed, and as they followed, they were afraid. Now, why do you think they were amazed and afraid? Because Jesus has already told them a couple of times, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. And they're probably like, oh, we're on that road. We're heading there. Is that going to happen? What's what's going on? And then he took the twelve aside and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. So just in case they were wondering if what he had told them twice was still going to happen, he reminds them a third time what's about to happen in Jerusalem. And he says in verse 33, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priest and to the scribes, those religious leaders. They'll condemn him to death. They'll deliver him to the Gentiles, the Romans, and they will mock him. They'll scourge him. They'll spit on him and they'll what, church? They'll kill him. And the third day, here's the good news, we sang about it this morning, he will rise again. I mean, Jesus gives this very detailed prophetic description. And and you know, this is one of the places in the scripture when people are like, how do we know Jesus was who he claimed to be? He details everything that's going to happen. And when he gets to Jerusalem, everything happens exactly like he said. And it's not like he's given the Romans orders. They don't take orders from anybody. And he's letting the disciples know, this is going to take place. Now, you remember the first time Jesus revealed to his disciples that he was going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to be, you know, scourged, and he was going to die? You remember Peter's reaction to that? He pulled Jesus aside and he tried to rebuke him. Oh, that's real funny. Try to rebuke Jesus. And you all remember, that didn't go well for Peter. Peter. And so then Jesus tries a second time. He tells his disciples the second time he's going to be crucified. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to die. And you remember what happened that time? He told them on the road. And while he's telling them that, the disciples are on their back arguing about who's going to be the greatest ruler in the kingdom with Jesus. And he's just told them he's going to die. And they're only thinking of themselves. Well, this is the third time Jesus is telling his disciples he's going to die in Jerusalem. What are they going to do this time? How are they going to react? Well, they hold true to form. Watch verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. That's pretty bold, isn't it? Jesus, I want you to do for me whatever I ask. I mean, this reminds me of my kids sometimes. Dad, I want you to do something. Promise me you're going to do it. Now, a smart parent will first say, Well, what is it that you want me to do before? I'm I'm not going to promise until you tell me what it is. And Jesus here is very wise, of course, and very smart. And so he says to them, what do you want me to do? You're telling me to do whatever you ask, but first you tell me, what is it you want me to do? Very wise response. Parents, you can learn from that right there. They'll try to trap you sometimes with that kind of question. Verse 37, and they said to him, grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. We want to be the main rulers, James and John. We, one wants to rule on the right, and one wants to rule on the left. The other ten, you can figure out where you're going to put them later. We want to be the rulers. Now, hello? Is, has anyone listening to what Jesus just told him for the third time? He just told him again, I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be spat upon. I'm going to be betrayed. The next thing you see is James and John going, can we be rulers in the kingdom? Please, please, can we? Please, 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 we promise. One on the right and one on your left. And when you study the other gospels, Matthew tells us it's worse than that. Guess who else was there as a spokesman for James and John? Their mama. Their mother, it says, was with them and saying these things to Jesus. Matthew chapter 20, you can check it out later. She's like, hey, uh, Jesus, could you please let my two boys? Don't you just love moms? (laughs) Moms always want to stick up for their kids. Always wanted to help their kids out. You know, the mom there talking to Jesus, trying to get them to be rulers. You know, aren't mo- moms great, but moms can be embarrassing. <sighs> my mom's 83, 83 years old. I was talking to her on the phone just last week. And uh, she is living in kind of a retirement village. She's still, uh, praise God, right now, able to live on her own, kind of in a retirement village. And she said, I've been going to a Bible study uh, at my retirement village. I'm like oh that's great mom that's awesome She goes I need you to send me All of the CDs of all of your messages For the last seven years I'm like why mom She goes because I've told them at that Bible study You're the best preacher in the world And I want them to listen I'm like mom come on I said it's on the internet Oh I don't deal with that stuff You know you know, and then we get this, the mom here doing the same thing. You know, I, I, I've loved watching the Olympics. Have you guys enjoyed the Olympics? I'll tell you one of the things I've enjoyed watching the Olympics more than watching the athletes is watching the parents. Watching the parents in the stands, you know, Ali Rasmussen, I think it is, Rasmussen, that won the gold on the floor. You know, she's doing the exercise. They got like one on her and one on her parents in the stands. And they're like, oh, oh, oh. you know what I mean? They're doing, that's all I'm doing. Okay. I'm gonna hurt something you know and and the parents are like yeah i mean I, i love watching the parents and that's what you got going on here you got this mom trying to get her two sons to be rulers and they're talking to jesus and he's just told them about his death and then look what happens in verse 38 but jesus said to them you do not know what you are asking are you able to drink the cup that i drink and be baptized with the baptism that i am baptized with and they said to him we're able Bring it on. <laughs> Bad response. So Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptized baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. Now, Jesus here is not talking about water baptism. He, he's not even talking about spiritual baptism. He's talking about drinking the cup of God's wrath, of death. That's what he's talking about, being baptized into the suffering that he's about to experience in Jerusalem. And Jesus said, okay, you're going to get what you asked for. It is going to happen to you. And you know what history tells us? James was the first disciple martyred for his faith. And John, we know, went through incredible persecution, was almost boiled to death, and then was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. And so they did experience what Jesus was going to experience to some degree. And Jesus says, But to sit on my right hand and on my left to rule in that way is not mine to give, but is for those from whom it is prepared and when the ten heard it, the other ten, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. Of course they did. They're probably mad because they didn't think of this idea first. Oh, I can't believe they asked to be rulers on right and left first. We should have thought of that. And you know, again, who are they thinking about? They're all just thinking about themselves. They're not thinking about Jesus. They're not thinking about others. They're thinking about how they're going to rule. But Jesus called, to, called them to himself. He's teaching opportunity again called the disciples to him and he says you know that those who are considered rulers over the gentiles lorded over them like dictators and their great ones exercise authority over them yet it shall not be so among you jesus says that's not the way a christian acts that's not our m.o. that not us But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whosoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all or servant of all. For even the Son of Man, Jesus, did not come to be served, but to what, church? Serve. And we've seen that chapter after chapter, verse after verse. We're going to see him serve all the way to the cross to die for us. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Here's the paradox. Jesus is saying, in my kingdom, rulers aren't served. The servants are the rulers. You want to rule? Then serve others. And this is a pattern throughout Scripture with all of God's men. Before they were put in positions of authority and power, they first were humble servants. And they were teachable. You see it in the life of Joseph, Moses. Joshua, David, Timothy, the list goes on and on. And then the greatest example right here in Jesus himself. Listen, if it was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us. Amen? What what does Christian mean? It means little Christ, to be Christ-like. And Christ was the epitome of servanthood, serving others, putting the needs of others and thinking of others before himself. The servants will be rulers in his kingdom. The first will be last. The adults will be as children. And then we see the last one, number four. The poor will be rich. You're going to love this. The poor will be rich. Now they came to Jericho. Now they're only about 15 miles from Jerusalem, heading up the road. And as Jesus went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude... Blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. Now, the reason there were lots of people at this time was because, as we know in the Scriptures, we're going to see, this was the time of the Passover. And all the Jews were making their yearly pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover feast and the Passover celebration. So there would have been thousands of people, and there's this one blind beggar mixed into the crowd of hundreds, maybe thousands of people, and he's on the road. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Then many warned him to be quiet. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now, when twice this blind Bartimaeus used the title Son of David, that was a messianic title. Meaning he was calling on Jesus, believing he truly was the promised Messiah. That's why he called on him. He didn't call him good teacher. He said, son of David, Messiah, Savior. He had, it, was, it was revealing his personal faith of who he believed Jesus was. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called, brought to him. Then they called the blind man, saying to him, be of good cheer, rise. Jesus is calling you. And throwing aside his garment... He rose and came to Jesus. So Jesus answered and said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, which means Lord, that I may receive my sight. And then Jesus said to him, Go your way. I love this. Say it, church. Your, okay, that's all church. Church, that means everybody. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and he ran away and was happy about it. Is that what it says? Nope. He received his sight and who did he follow? He followed Jesus. If the rich young ruler was the poster child for the opposite of childlike faith, blind Bartimaeus is the poster child for childlike faith. That's what it says here. Your faith. Has made you whole. He called Jesus son of David. He called him Messiah. He called him Lord. He, he expressed his personal faith. And we know it was genuine. Because once he got his sight. He didn't just run off and enjoy it. He followed Jesus. I mean you have two opposites here. Between the rich young ruler. And blind Bart. As I like to call him. The rich man went away sorrowful. And wouldn't follow Jesus. Bart was joyful. And followed Jesus. The rich man left, wouldn't leave his riches. He wouldn't, he wouldn't put his faith in Christ because he had too much stuff and too much possessions. And he, he wouldn't leave his riches. And he left with nothing. He came wanting eternal life, but he left with... The, even though he had his riches, he really spiritually had nothing. Blind Bartimaeus had nothing. He was just a blind beggar, but he left with everything following Jesus. The poor in this story became what? Rich. The poor became rich. And I love this. This is what kept me up at night waiting to show you guys. Look at verse 50. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. Who threw aside his garment? Blind Bartimaeus. History would tell us that he was, you know, they had those long cloaks. And he would have been sitting probably on the side and knowing, you know, it would be like, you know, going to the Rockies game. And a lot of times you'll see people needing money and they'll stand there because they know hundreds of people are going to come by. And so blind Bartimaeus is a blind beggar and he's sitting there on the side of the road and he's got his garment draped out in front of him like this. And he's sitting on the road and people would toss some coins if they felt, you know, sorry for him and and, and pity toward him. They would would give some money if they were gracious towards him. And so he probably had some coins and some money laying on that garment. But as soon as he has the opportunity to come to Jesus, it says he throws aside his garment. You know why? Because he didn't need it. And he didn't need the money. And he tosses his money aside and he runs into the arms of Jesus and he receives eternal life and he follows Jesus. Just the opposite of the rich young ruler who would not leave his possessions and give it up and come to Jesus. He tosses it aside, comes to Jesus, and follows Jesus. I love that. What an awesome picture for us. One not willing to give up anything and leaves with nothing, thinking he's holding on to stuff. One who's willing to give up everything comes to Jesus and he has everything. What a paradox. It reminds us of what Jesus told us in Mark 8.35. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, Jesus says, and the gospels will what? He'll save it. And here's the paradox for us as we close this morning. If you and I let go of whatever is holding us back from fully following Jesus and run to Him, we have everything. We have everything. But if we hold on to whatever is holding us back from Jesus, we may still have what we're holding on to, but really, spiritually, we have nothing. Let me ask you this morning, church, which man does your life represent? The rich young ruler? who's holding on to things that keeps us from childlike faith in Jesus, or blind Bartimaeus, who's willing to say, you know what, I'll give up whatever it takes to come to Jesus, because I know in coming to him, I really lose nothing, I have everything. Which man does your life represent this morning? Would you bow your heads?